This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Russell Sachs explained how he built a nationwide rep program to power his multi-million dollar business. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that believes the key to success is to work with micro-influencers rather than celebrity influencers. In this episode, you'll learn how to validate a product that no one has ever seen before, why you should force customers to buy from you online, even if you meet them offline, and what are micro-influencers, how to find them, and how to work with them to help you promote your business and your products. Today, I'm joined by Brad Westerop from Thuggies.com. That's T-H-U-G-G-I-E-S.com. Thuggies sells the longest hoodie you'll ever wear and was started in 2009 and based out of Vancouver, Canada. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, Felix. Hey, so excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Thuggies and what exactly is it that you sell? <laughs> sure. Thuggies is, uh, yeah, like you said, the longest sweatshirt you'll ever wear. Uh, a large, uh, fits a normal, you know, person's uh, width in a large t-shirt, but uh, the sweatshirt goes down, you know, past your knees. So it kind of originated through the hate for pants. Uh, <laughs> me and the founders just hated wearing pants and, uh, a friend of mine had sewn this thing and he's like, yeah, I don't even have to wear pants anymore. And it almost became this like hoodie dress that obviously, uh, spawned into the thuggy and, uh, yeah, it's got like the kangaroo pocket, like a thuggy or like a hoodie, but it's all the way down at the bottom and we got some hidden side pockets too. And as we hated pants more and more, we started making, uh, adult onesies and, you know, extra long sweatshirts for your kids too. So you know, it's kind of hard for... Yeah, looking at the different products, it's like it slowly evolves from just the, uh, just barely longer than a regular hoodie down to like more and more comfortable into a onesie. It's kind of funny to see yeah, this evolution totally. of your business. Uh, yeah, so how did you come up with this this idea? Like, What was the uh, inspiration behind it? Uh, my friend was actually making it as a joke. Every year we went up to Whistler, which is uh, kind of the Canadian version of Vail. Uh, and we were all going skiing and we all kind of dress up every year. And, uh, that year he sewed the super long hoodie and we're all kind of laughing about it. And he was trying to make fun of, you know, that really long skier fad, you know, where everybody wore super baggy clothes. Uh, and we put it on and we're like, this is really comfortable. This is awesome. And, um, after that, we just kind of realized that's, that's where we had a business and, uh, I knew it would be comfortable and, and I loved it and I hated pants and we kind of all laughed about that and went from there. And that's really how we, we kind of had the idea. It was more of a joke that, that turned into a reality. Mm, makes sense. So you, it started off as a joke, but you realized that there was value and that you enjoyed it yourselves because it obviously had some, uh, comfort or some need that you, that you were looking for. And, but how did you validate it? How did you know that it wasn't just you guys that wanted this stuff and it was actually a market for, for the product like this? Yeah. I, I mean, being such a weird product too, um, I'd say, 50 to 60% of our friends were thought we were crazy even 
trying to go further than the first three or four that we that we sewed ourselves. But we kind of knew we had something and we thought we could do a cult following kind of thing. So um, we just kind of made 10 or 15 of them by hand. And uh, my business partner at the time, Brian, he sewed them at his house and we kind of started a Facebook page and a Twitter page and just kind of tried to find people to talk to. And we had a few people think they were really awesome and a lot of people that thought they were really dumb. Which, which which isn't really very encouraging at the start of something, but we just kind of had faith in it and, and we were into it for, you know, a little bit of time and, and we figured, well, you know, we didn't really spend any time yet and this could be a really good gift down the road for people's Christmases and replace, you know, those ugly pajamas that everybody gets. So that was kind of our goal. Mm-hmm. So how many people were involved in this uh, early on from the beginning? Because it sounds like, you know, you and your group of friends were interested in this product you guys were wearing, you guys were making for yourselves, but who was actually involved in, I guess, the initial stages of starting the business? Yeah, it was um, originally uh, Thuggies was founded by three people, uh, myself and two others. And we all kind of focused on uh, different parts of the business. So uh, Kim was a, a marketing by trade person. She she's you know great on social media and all that kind of PR realm. So we we figured it was her job to get our name out there. And then um, with Brian had all the textiles experience. He had worked in a bunch of skateboard shops and he had a sewing machine. And I came from a, a real estate development background, so I had all the kind of business and feasibility aspect to the company. So I was really the one driving. Uh, how much money we can spend where and how many hoodies we think we could realistically sell and, and, you know, obviously all the way into estimating conversion rates. So that was the original team. The only thing we were missing was a, a web designer and our second Twitter follower, Dave, ended up being a web designer. So we tweeted, I think we only had three or four Twitter followers and tweeted, we need a web designer. Does anybody know anybody? And we didn't have any money to pay them. So we met with Dave and he gave us a invoice that I laughed at and couldn't, couldn't afford. So we gave him another 25% of the company. And then we all became, uh, the four kind of founders of Thuggies and, and, uh, yeah, we all had equal stake, which was really nice. And, uh, it, it helped a lot through the early stages. Yeah, you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum of, uh, I guess, size of uh, the founding team because a lot of the listeners out there and a lot, I think a lot of the podcast uh, guests in the past have been solo founders. Maybe they had another co-founder at the most, but you guys pretty much started off in the beginning with four co-founders. Uh, what kind of challenges you know, for anyone else out there that's thinking about starting a business with you know, three, maybe four other people, or maybe they already have a business but are thinking about bringing on three or four other people, what kind of challenges do you think that you have to look out for to make sure that it is going to be a successful partnership? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think we, we had a very interesting partnership through the entire part of Thuggies and, and other uh, you know, other ventures as well. I th- I love having partners, but there, there are definitely challenges. Uh, the biggest I think is, is everybody's life cycle. So, you know, I was, I was single. I had my own apartment. I had a well-paying job. I didn't really care if I lost $2,000 starting this thing up. Whereas, um, 
you know, other people might have, you know, a lower paying job or, you know, a, a child or something that they're really hoping this business is going to take off and they expect something else out of it. Or, you know, two years down the road, they get married and they don't want to work on something anymore. And we kind of had employment changes with people that, you know, they had to put more time into their into their real profession. And, and we had a couple of partnership switches through that. But I think the real challenge is making sure that you have somebody or lots of people that are all working on something that's their own. Because I think a lot of people, you know, want to run the social media part of it because that's kind of the cool thing right now. But you need somebody that can handle the accounting or at least the ability to understand it. And that's kind of where I took, I was kind of the business guy and I had to make sure that that was being looked after while we were, you know, reaching out to PR and while Brian was sewing and while Dave was working on the website and we'd all meet up, you know, once or twice a week and say, okay, where are we all at? And we all kind of had a common goal, but um, yeah, finding that common goal between that many people and, and having an agreement that we're able to make sure people are happy even when they don't get their way. Uh, that's kind of the, that's the struggle for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you guys just figured out along the way. And when there were pieces or parts that were maybe being neglected a bit because of these life cycles and because of the shift in priorities for people, you and other members of the founding team just picked up that slack and it obviously has worked out for you guys because you've, you know, made it through. But if you were to go back and and knew this was coming, could you do anything to set up the business in a, in a way where it would respond maybe a little bit better to these changes in people's lives? Cause that's going to happen, right? For any mm. business that any yeah. business that you start with anybody, it's going to happen. People are going to have different uh, life events, having, kids getting married having you know if, if you guys do it on a side someone might lose their job or their priorities just yeah. might shift their interests might shift how do you set it up a set up a company or a partnership in a way that can respond well to situations like that i think equality was the first thing in setting up that business when we brought dave on is originally we were trying to you know lowball them at you know 15 percent of the company because you know everybody tells you not to give away equity especially when you're kind of starting a business, it's, you know, keep your equity. You don't want to lose your company, but the equality really helped us because then everybody had an equal voice when there was an argument. And we just agreed that, you know, if it's two on two, we play rock, paper, scissors. And if it's three against one, then, you know, that the people that, you know, agreed to the three people that agreed are the ones that, um, you know, that, that decision ends up being the right one. And I'm not saying that those three people always made the right one, but at least <laughs> you kind of had that, that, that kind of governance in the company. And that really helped, that really helped us. Yeah. I think what you're getting at too, is that it was at least fair. Like everyone, even though it might yeah. not be the right decision, no one was necessarily bitter or resentful about it because there was a fair way to 
to, I guess, come to an agreement, even if it ended up not being the right agreement. I think that that's an important point. People, you don't want partners that, that slowly resent, build up resentment over time because it's going to implode at some point, and that's obviously not good for business. Okay, so, so you know, uh, enough talking about the negatives of having uh, sure. partnerships. <laughs> what about the upsides? You know, having three other partners, I think, you know, I can think of, you know, of course, plenty of uh, help that you can get now that you have all these people that are invested in as much as you did. But were there any things that maybe you didn't foresee, uh, I guess, beneficial that, that uh, comes out of a partnership with so many? Well, not so many, but three other co-founders. Yeah, I think the the personal uh, networks of everybody really help. So if I were to start a business by myself, I can reach out to my friends, my family, um, you know, past investors or past employers. But if you times that by four, all of a sudden there's so many more people that you could potentially be selling these things. You know, like I sold a bunch to my old real estate company for Christmas or you know, we had all these really cool networks that that we didn't think we could sell a thuggy to until we really started talking to them, and, and it was a lot easier with more people. Um, that and just the, the combination of being able to split all the work, um, being able to have your own uh, talent and you able to focus on that, and that's where your career was. Was this how you guys got started uh, by selling to your own network or how did you get the first, uh, I guess, batch of sales? Yeah, I think the first batch of sales, we just talked to people and we wore them on the, on the subway here. We wore them at the uh, 2010 Olympic Games. We made Canada-themed ones and we wrote thuggies all over it and we just tried to go to as many free events as we could and, and wear these things and people started talking to us and like, what are those? Because you're basically a walking billboard. It stands out so much that, you know, you can't miss a guy wearing a sweatshirt dress. <laughs> so, and that's what everybody asks. We're like, no, it's a thuggy. And, and now we've kind of become this brand that, that's been mentioned, uh, you know, in, in ski magazines to gift guides. And I think that initial step was just wearing it outside and being noticed and then being friendly about it and, and letting people try it on and, and touch it and feel it. And we make some really, we use really high quality cotton. So it, it feels really nice versus a, you know, a cheap fleece sweatshirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think when people are are thinking about starting an e-commerce business, they think about how can I get my sales, how can I set up a system to generate sales online and really just focus on on how to drive traffic online to a store and get people to buy that way. But you guys started offline, essentially. You were marketing this offline by going out and wearing the, the apparel and talking to people about it and getting people to talk to you about it. Did you guys ever feel, not necessarily burnt out but feel like it wouldn't be scalable going this route because like, i think this is an important topic because i think yeah. entrepreneurs out there do think that they think that i'm not going to set up a business that requires me to go out and sell person to person because that might be almost counter to the reason why they started online business in the first place so was there a i guess end goal to start there and then eventually go online or like what was your the thought process yeah we had we had our website built um just before the Olympics in 2010. And we knew, uh, especially with Dave's background and being in in digital design, that we had to drive people to our site to sell. Even if we had them on, even if we were telling people about them, they still had to go to our site realistically. Mm. You might be able to sell a few here and there, 
So we had coupon codes uh, based on the events that we were going to. So we printed business cards that are super cheap and we'd write, um, you know, Olympics 2010. So whenever we gave those out and they were ever used on, on our website, we could see that conversion come through and you say, oh, okay, that one worked or this one didn't. And then all the products that we wore always said thuggies.com on it. So even if people, um, you know, didn't want to come up to the four people wearing these goofy sweatshirts, they could at least still go online. And, you know, we had stickers all over our cars and we drive around Vancouver and there's still people that take pictures of my car and you can see them looking on their phone, like, what's this brand? And um, then we have, I mean, that's, a, it was a great way to get our name out. And I think that's why Vancouver is one of our biggest, biggest markets now is that we all live here. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great way to drive people back to the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was scalable, probably not immensely scalable, but at least we kind of picked events that we really wanted to go to. So if we were really interested in a snowboard event, we would all just go to that and we'd get to hang out with our, you know, three friends. We'd talk business and, and try to sell some thuggies. And, and it was more of a, you know, a, a hobby vacation kind of thing. Like, you know, getting free lift passes was something that we never got before. And, mm-hmm being able to do that with thuggies was awesome. So we never really thought of it as work. Mm, makes sense. So you, you market it online to begin with, but you're able to tie it online through these coupon codes and we're able to identify which activities, which offline activities work the best. So what did you do with this data? You know, if you found out that the Olympics uh, was a very, uh, I guess, successful channel for you guys because of the, the, I guess, jump in the coupon code usage, how did you use that to inform, I guess, future decisions? Uh, well, I mean, the Olympics one obviously is hard. We're not going to travel around the world every four, <laughs> two or four years, depending on the season. It'd be awesome. Yeah. But I mean, in the, at the start, I think we might've sold three or four units with that code. And that was probably over a month. So, uh, we were still really slow and just trying to get traffic where we could. But once we did find one that worked, uh, we tried to find other ones and we really found, uh, there's a ski hill about six hours from here that for some reason we just kept selling thuggies up there. So we're like, maybe we should do an event up there. And that one really converted. And we still do that every year. And we've become so close with the mountain that they actually buy their own branded ones for their staff every year. So it ended up turning out to be a, a huge payoff. And now they even, they pay for our hotels when we're up there. It's awesome. Mm. So I think it's it's a matter of testing and knowing that, you know, setting expectations for how much money or time you're going to put into it. And if, if you're going to spend, you know, $500 for the booth and then eight hours of your time, at least know that that time's got to pay off either in awareness or, um, or sales and, and set yourself a goal. Like I want, you know, a hundred emails out of this and how are you going to get that? You're going to talk to as many people as you can. And we find usually those events end up working fairly well. 
Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, how do you decide which of these events you have a presence at today? Because you know, like I think you're, what you're getting at was that you saw there was a lot of you know sales and traffic coming from a particular area. Uh, you know, Vancouver, of course, for you guys. So you probably spend a lot of time marketing there because it works well. Uh, but give us an idea of how you would set this up. You know, for maybe an sure. entrepreneur out there that's thinking about doing more offline and offline marketing and being more present at, at events. Like, how do you begin to identify how you should spend your time? Mostly it's, it's about what either our, our brand feel is. If somebody comes out and says, Hey, I want you guys to be at uh, a yoga retreat. Um, we've actually done one and it actually works pretty well. They're actually really good for after yoga cause you can change in them. But, uh, it's a matter of thinking where a thuggy would work best and where your product would work best and knowing your, your market. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and you just got to go try one, try to make it as cheap as you can and make it look as cool as possible. And then from there, either say like, we're not going to do this again or try it again another time. And we had one, we had a ski, a ski festival that we went to that we thought we were just going to do so well at. It was a whole week long and it's this huge thing and it was the worst event that we could have ever done. It was expensive and we now know not to do that again or to do similar ones. And we try to keep them really local so that you can at least talk to people and you can be close. But we do less and less events ourselves and now we have kind of ambassadors that that are kind of in the Thuggies family that we will send them a bunch of stuff and, and they'll set up a booth or they'll set up you know, a, a wakeboard competition or a water ski competition and we end up sponsoring it with them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure that you guys are a lot better at this now than you were originally identifying which mm-hmm. events to go to. So are there any key markers or key signs about a particular event that makes you guys go, yes, we have to be there? Yeah, I think uh, originally it was our hypothesis of, you know, is this market going to be good for us? Now it's a matter of checking our sales through, you know, the back end of Shopify and, and analyzing those postal codes and seeing how many people we've sold. Um, and at what time of the season have we sold our products? And if we see, you know, 300 people in Utah have bought products, there's a good chance that if we set something up there or sponsor something, they'll already recognize our brand or their friends have seen it. And we've, we always find that, that, that person to person or customer to customer marketing has worked so well. Mm, so you guys look at the back end and you can see that some disproportionate percentage of your sales are coming from a specific postal code during a specific time of year. So then maybe you'll look to see if there's any events going on that time. If not, maybe set up your own and just be there at the right time in front of the, at the, in front of the right people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great way to, I think, think about it because that's exactly what you have to do in the online world as well. You know, you have to be in the right place at the right time and it's the same thing here and now you're just, you know, doing in, the, doing in person this time but the data is going to help you inform those decisions just like you would in the online world. Uh, so, you know, speaking of um, being there in person and being there to actually see your customers face-to-face, what are some things that you learn by talking to your customers, by seeing them offline, by seeing them in person that you don't think would be possible if you guys just focus online only? I think you learn a lot about your customer 
um, and who they are a lot faster on um, face-to-face. You're able to talk to them. You can see them try on the product. Uh, you can see how they react. And you can see a lot of people react negatively, and you can see them react positively. But you can kind of read their face and their emotion a lot better than uh, our Facebook ads, right? We're always saying, you know, a conversion rate at 2 or 3% is awesome, and that's great. But we don't know about the other 97% or 99%, depending on the ad. So you get a lot more feedback. And, and if you can adjust, you know, certain things, we had, we found out at one of the events that because our hoodies are so long, you can't really get to your pockets if you're wearing shorts or anything. Or if you're not wearing pants at all, you don't even have pockets. So finally, one one kid came up one day, he's like, why don't you guys have hidden pockets somewhere? And like, why is your pocket at the bottom? Like, I can't get anything in there. I can't walk in there when I have, you know, a can of Red Bull. And we're like, oh man, how have we not figured that out? <laughs> and we just, you know, cut a little hole in the seams and I just did it with a pen and just ripped a hole in my thuggy and I could get to my short pocket. I'm like, oh man, we should just make hidden pockets. Like, why, why haven't we done this? And you wouldn't have gotten that feedback from a customer unless they, you know, bought online. Well, they went through your ad process online, they bought it, and then, you know, took the time to email us back instead of just returning the product or just not telling us at all. So that's kind of, that was the benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you're saying, 2% of the customers obviously loved it, but then there's just so much to learn from the other 98% on why they didn't like it. But you won't ever know why when it's just you know a Facebook ad or just online only because they could just turn around and say, you know, I don't like this. I'm just going to leave and not click on this ad. You don't have the time. To, you don't have the opportunity to say, hey, wait a second. Can we talk? Can I talk to you for a second to understand more you know, about why they don't like it? And that's only possible offline because you don't get that opportunity to ask them questions, ask them about why they don't want to buy or why they're not interested in it as easily as you would uh, offline versus online. Yeah, we, re- we really learned um, the most was when kids wanted them for Christmas. You know, there's a fit 14 to 18-year-old, like, Mom, I want to buy this for Christmas. I want this for Christmas. And they look at it like, you're never going to wear this thing. But if you can show them, like, no, like, after school, these guys can take their clothes off and they can just lie around at home. And, you know, they can hang out with their friends. And if they're changing for snowboarding, they can use it without, you know, getting naked in the parking lot. And the parents start realizing, oh, this is a really good, you know, Christmas present or whatever. And we went from that and now we write ads based on, on that information. And we, we write ads to like online ads to parents saying, you know, your kids are going to love this for Christmas. And now we know what their pain points and not believing it originally. And that's how we figured that out. Yeah, let's talk about this a little more because I think this is an important, uh, I guess, goldmine for stores and entrepreneurs that that they might not be using. Because you're saying that people are coming up to you and they're telling you things that you might not be able to pick up on in the online world. And then you're taking that information, taking what they're saying and using that, those words into your, I guess your ad copy or your design of the ads themselves. So talk us a little bit more about this process. Like how do you actually go about doing this and actually, you know, break it down for us. Like how do you go from hearing what people say to actually turning that into an ad? Sure. Um, I mean, the perfect example, I guess, is a, is the Christmas present. Um, we're extremely, uh, seasonal and, and, 
these do make the best pajama replacements. So we started talking to parents and we, we heard that, that thing, like, I don't want to spend $95 or $89, depending on, on what model you're buying on a sweatshirt and a sweatshirt that's too long. So we said, okay, you know, why do you think that? And, and we get this information. So once, once they say, well, it's not going to be used enough. So then we go, okay, well, we need to show a kid having a lot of fun in a sport that they like. And we need to show the parents what, like, how did, you need to show them a picture of how that works. And you need to write a copy that shows them how that works. So we end up saying, okay, let's get a, a photo of some kids on the ski hill or just after the ski hill. And then let's get some pictures of some younger kids, you know, after the playground or after swimming or, but kind of near the swimming pool. So it eludes like, Oh, this is a great comfort thing for my, my younger daughter. Um, you know, after swimming stay warm. And then we can write that in copy. Like, don't let your kids get cold after swimming. And then we target, you know, parents, you know, an age group in Facebook that, you know, are married and likely have a kid or, and then if they like swimming, then there's a good chance that a swimming ad could, could work with them. And that's kind of how we did it is the step-by-step what, what was the problem that we're solving? And if we're going after someone like a parent, how are, how are they going to see it? And you kind of had to mix them together. And sometimes we just used, you know, pictures from our iPhone that, uh, you know, our, our cousins took of their kids. And then sometimes there's people like me took a picture of me and said, like, after soccer, you know, throw this on because you're cold and wet. And that's kind of how it worked. Yeah, I love that, that you take the objections that you're hearing about why people aren't buying the products and you handle that in the ad itself by showing them mm-hmm. not necessarily the opposite of it, but why maybe the objection isn't as valid or maybe it's why it's not as important and why it should not prevent them from trying or buying the product. And I, I love that. I think, you know, that obviously sounds like it works out. It works way faster in the offline world because again, you get these opportunities to talk to people, you get these opportunities to understand their objections. But, you know, if you can't do it offline, I think online is just as uh, viable of a place place to find these objections by talking yeah. to your customers, looking at reviews, you know, looking at what people are complaining about, looking at the reasons why they're not buying. It's not going to be as easy again because you won't get this opportunity as much, but you can still find out why people are not buying uh, online and then tar- using that language that they're using and almost flipping it on its head and showing them why it's not an actual reason to not buy the product. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So um, let's talk about, I think one of the things you mentioned uh, in the pre-interview was about uh, one of the key ways that you guys are able to market today is through word of mouth. And I think you also mentioned mentioned micro-influencers. So tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about this. Like, What are, what are micro-influencers? Yeah, I, I think it's a term that's been used around the internet. Um, we use it a lot at, at Thuggies and at Bedface. We have uh, a bunch of people that are really into Thuggies, and they might have small followings, and that's why I use micro-influencers. They might not have you know a million followers on Instagram and 50,000 followers on Facebook, but they were going to do so much more work for so much less product um, or payment than you would get normally. So we've, over the, you know, six years that we've been doing this, we have, um, 
a bunch of, of micro influencers and they're like ambassadors. Uh, but they're, they're kind of our, our, our family, I guess you could say. So we give them thuggies and, you know, they tell their friends and their friends tell their friends. And we've always found because our product is so out there and noticeable that once one person has one, the postal codes around them or the zip codes in the U S um, start buying them as well. And we started figuring out, okay, like, because this person wears one here, their friend probably doesn't live in the same postal code, but he wants one now. And then all of a sudden you see three more from there. So these micro influencers are, are people that we now actually reach out to that are generally uh, fairly small uh, social traffic, but do you take great photos or, you know, they write a great blog um, and we provide them with merchandise or uh, a small budget for a photo shoot. And we give them all the product we want shot and just let them do it. And a lot of the time it works out really well because they feel so much more attached to the brand. Uh, whereas we've, we've kind of tried, um, you know, these hundred thousand or 300,000 like thousand followers and on Instagram, for example, and you only get one post and they want money and then you never really see any benefit. And, uh, I've never really found these big influencers really get any strong traction unless they're really, really big. And, you know, we've had a couple of big celebrities wear thuggies. Um, and the only one that's actually been really good was T-Pain. And he was awesome. And we're actually working on a T-Pain thuggy now too. But most of them, we just find that if they're not posting more than once, then you never really, it's too easy to miss on Instagram now. And, and I think it's more of these micro influencers that just tell their friends. And that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I, I like this this approach of um, working with uh, with micro influencers. So, how do you uh, identify micro influencers? Like, how do you find these people that are going to be a good fit for your brand? I mean, because everybody's on social media now, whether it's on Reddit or um, or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, um, we're all kind of on it at work, and our, uh, we work in a co working space too. So everybody's kind of on it. So if people say like, Hey, like I saw this picture, you should reach out to these people and, and check it out. So usually we have, um, Thuggies is a really outdoor kind of brand. So we generally want people that are active and that show interest or passion in what they're doing. So, you know, if you're really into cars and you're always outside, we say, Hey, like take your car out for a rip. We'll give you some Thuggies or your dirt bike but uh, I think we just find them just going through Instagram and trying to find these lower uh, followed accounts and just talk to them and say, hey, are you interested in this? We, we'd love your feedback. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So when you do find an, an influencer, a micro-influencer, and you want to work with them, how does it all get set up? Like, what's the conversation like? How do you get them? How do you set them up for success? Uh, I generally reach out right away, either, you know, through a messenger or, or if we have them through email, um, and say, Hey, like I'm, you know, the CEO of, of Thuggies. We make these really comfortable sweatshirts. Uh, we really like your photos. I was wondering if you guys can, you know, send some photos our way. If we give you some product and tell your friends and is this something you like, uh, it's pretty similar to messaging that you would want to give to somebody that had a million followers. 
the kind of process that ensues after that is is different where we get a lot more replies from people that with smaller accounts because they're not used to these spammy emails from every single company mm-hmm. that's been told to message million dollar or million person followers on on Instagram. Um, so we kind of filled in the niche and, and took these smaller guys and said, okay, let's do this. And um, they work a lot harder and you get a lot more visuals. And honestly, you can get someone with two followers can get a, just as good of a photo in a thuggy than somebody with a million followers that has nothing to do with um, how many followers they have. It's more of, you know, the content that you're creating and we get the pictures, we email them out to our other our other customers and say, hey, like, this is what, you know, John from Utah was doing last weekend on his dirt bike and he took his thuggy and stuff like that. And that, that's where it really kind of comes into play. I like this idea of um, basically curating a lifestyle, right, around your product because you are identifying these micro-influencers, these people that are going to be using your product uh, just to live their life, right? To to do things like you know ride their motorbikes or or hang out at the pool. All these examples that you gave, and then spreading that message to your existing customers. Um, so, is there a a process or some kind of um, I guess a, a, a schedule behind this? Like, how do you guys manage all of this? Because I'm assuming you have a ton of micro influencers. Like, how do you make sure that that you are making the most use out of the content they're giving you um, mm-hmm. with the photos and all that? Like, how do you organize and manage all of that? Uh, for the first kind of four or five years, it was really hard. Uh, uh, we kind of have a big Dropbox folder that I've been saving every email and everything we've ever gotten from these people. Uh, now that we're, we're kind of a team here and I don't, I worked for thuggies. I quit my job of probably two or three years ago and just did full-time thuggies for a while. I was the only one working. So it was all in my head. Uh, now that we have, uh, some social media help in house, uh, she's able to kind of look through my old emails and then I'm kind of telling her the story like, okay, I found these people here and, and this is who they are and they don't email us anymore. They're kind of too old or they're over it and they don't want to do it anymore. And, and we start finding new ones, but the, the process is probably not as automated as it should be and as scheduled as it should be. But, uh, we do notice that the people that are really into it will email us every two or three weeks and say, Hey, I went water skiing here this week. Here's these new pictures. And, you know, we just say, Oh, thanks. Like here's another thuggy and try to just keep them as interested as possible. But we're, we're working on a, a better way to handle more. So we, we usually have 15 to 20 really active people at a time. And obviously that life cycle comes back where people, you know, move away or are doing something different in their life that they, they don't follow the whole thuggy thing as, as strongly as they used to. And um, we just kind of keep evolving with the, the brand and the people. Mm-hmm. So the content that you are getting with these photos and you said that you email them out and I can see that there's a lot of these lifestyle photos as well on your Instagram. Do th- is this like the best converting type of content for you guys or is it serve a different purpose? I think it's really, con- it, it converts really well if we use, you know, these micro influencers, uh, photos in certain ads and if they're, if they're working right. But we, we generally use it as um, encouragement uh, and 
I guess, a sense of family in, in our business. So we feel attached to the customer or the influencer and they feel that we actually value, you know, their pictures and their lifestyle. And then they go on and, you know, tell their friends about the brand. And I think it, it's a kind of like a, a, not a direct conversion from the photo itself or the post on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I think it's the, the feeling of, of being together and then, and that feeling like they want to help us grow and we want to help them grow and whether they're in a sport or if they just like camping a lot and they just need a couple extra sweatshirts. So it, it's kind of a mutual, mutually beneficial kind of relationship. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things when you have a lifestyle brand like this because once you kick it off, your most devoted customers are going to be helping you grow this lifestyle and by producing the content, producing the photos, telling their friends about it and bringing more people into the fold. Once you're able to kick this engine off, it really accelerates at its own speed as long as you keep on feeding it. But it, it, you know, it grows even without your help sometimes just because you've already done a lot of the groundwork by building building the lifestyle, by building the image, by building the brand early on. So I think, uh, you know, you hit on something with creating this kind of uh, engine by working with these micro-influencers, working with uh, all these people that are helping you spread the product word of mouth. Um, so now I know yeah. that I actually want to talk about another business that you started since then. Before we move on from from, from uh, Thuggies, can you, guys, can you give us an idea of the growth of the business or, or how successful the business is today? Sure, yeah. Thuggies is... Um doing about just over half, well, we're on track for over half a million U.S. this year. Um, it does sound like a very small number in the, in the realm of things, but um, it's always been this this project that's funded other projects, and we do have, because we're so vertically integrated, we do the manufacturing, we source it ourselves, we source all the fabric ourselves. So we do have fairly strong margins, and we really only pay me a small salary, and now that we have a bit of a team and a new company, we kind of split infrastructure and we've created, I guess, a really small conglomerate of companies where we use the infrastructure from both to, to fund it. Mm, awesome. So, yeah, so I, let's, I answered your question. No, you definitely did. So let's talk about <laughs> the new company. So it's Bedface, bedface.com. Um, I can kind of see some similarities between two businesses, mm. but they are, I'm assuming, serving much different audiences, serving much different demographics. First, tell us about Bedface. Like, what is it, and uh, what is the target market for this business? Sure, uh, Bedface.com is the, we make the best sheets on the internet. Uh, they're bed sheets that you can mix and match 24 different colors from. You can pick and choose whatever you want. We're launching patterns next week. Uh, yeah, next week. Um, and it's it's a fabric that we made ourselves through the learnings at Thuggies. Mm. And the company was actually built through the learnings at Thuggies. So one of the current partners at Thuggies and I said, okay, we want to go on and do Bedface. And we can fund Bedface by, you know, we didn't want to put a ton of money into bed sheets and then, have thuggies die so we said hey like maybe we can share resources and we hired uh actually we have a team of four now and and they go back and forth and the target market for bedface um is obviously a little older than thuggies um but we're still a playful brand so i'd say generally we're at the 26 year old to 50 55 um we'd certainly see older people buying our sheets as well uh the real reason we went with 
bed sheets is it's a it's a fairly consumable good. Uh, everybody owns them, and we saw not only the ability to sell bed sheets online, uh, but the, there's no real selection in color. And we knew from Thuggies that color, when merchandised right, works really, really well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we have 28 million different combinations that you can choose from. Wow. So it's, it's shocking. It creates a bit of an inventory nightmare, but, um, yeah, it's, it's doing great, and it's excelling through expectations. Can you say a little more about uh, what you mentioned about color combined with merchandising well creates an awesome product? Like, tell, Say a little more about that. What do you mean by that? Sure. We learned at Thuggies that uh, everybody loves the really bright Thuggy, but nobody will ever buy the really bright Thuggy. Mm. So for every bright Thuggy we have on the site, uh, you'd sell one bright one for every three or four black ones that you sold. But if we didn't have the bright ones on the site, no one would buy them, the black ones. So we started playing around with the colors within a thuggy. So instead of just being all black, we'd have a black with a white pocket and then one really good splash of color. And we noticed that that worked even better because people wanted to feel different and, and show off you know, their color. But you know, the pylon orange thuggy was really only for a, a really small group of people. Whereas the, you know, the black buggy with a bit of orange on it, uh, people kind of got close to the pylon, but it, it didn't seem so out there. So that's kind of the same thing with bed faces. You can have neon blue pillowcases and, uh, you know, a dark duvet cover and it. It gives you that sense of uh, individuality and, and change in the bedroom instead of these boring like navy and gray sheets all the time. Uh, so that was kind of our basis. And then we see people now, same with thuggies, is um, we see people or customers at Bedface that buy a neon yellow duvet cover and bright orange pillowcases. And then we see the other people that buy, you know, your your more typical navies and grays and uh, you know, dark purples, but then they add these, you know, bright pink or, uh, I don't know, and even white pillowcases or duvet cover. And that's really what we wanted to do is give people the ability to, to, I don't know, speak for themselves and in, in their house. That, that's interesting that you found that when you had these eccentric colors, uh, of the of the thuggies, it drove sales of the the I guess more muted um, colors. So, do you still have that in the catalog today, just to continue this? Uh, not continue, but to help support the more muted uh, and I guess not so loud uh, colorways. Or like, what's the what was the lesson that you learned just to add these accents into into um, I guess more not so loud uh, color combinations yeah we definitely um right now i think we're at the stock level just before christmas we're launching a couple new colors and in a week or so here at, at thuggies as well and um so we are a little a little low on our inventory online right now but yeah having those basic colors with bright pops of color so uh you know a black with a red and blue cuff um does really really well um and we just started experimenting with prints with thuggies too. And that, that did really well. And it was just that subtle 
kind of pop of color or pop of a pattern combined with, you know, the black or gray hoodie is just awesome. It works so well. Um, and then we still introduce these really crazy ones. And the one we're working on with T-Pain is by far the craziest one we've ever made. And uh, that's going to be that driver for sales of other of our other products, I think. Mm, that, that, I think that's just so, so intriguing that I never thought about it before, but you basically have a product that might not sell as well, or maybe the T-Pain one's going to be a different story, but, yeah, but you, yeah. you, you have a product that, that might not sell as well, but it's almost just used as a marketing tool to drive people to check out the products, to maybe spread awareness about the, the, the one popular product. And when people come to the site, they'll discover more brands that are a little bit more conservative, or not brands, they'll discover more products that are maybe a little more conservative that, that work that they can imagine you know, wearing out uh, and not feel so, I guess, self-conscious for wearing such a bright <laughs> color. I think that's so interesting. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense when you talk about it. I think that there's a lot of opportunities for other stores to try to find some kind of like anchor product that might not sell as well, but might be a much bigger kind of talking point or it might have more virality or just shareability. And that itself can drive traffic to the store. And then from there, the people might buy more products that fit their taste a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I don't. I, don't, I want to get back to to Bedface. So, so what are some things that you learned from the first business that when you started the second business, when you started Bedface.com, you guys knew you had to apply again? Uh, we definitely learned in, inventory control uh, was one of our biggest uh, issues at Thuggies from the start. Once we really started selling, we would oversell products by accident. We would miscount in our inventory, and then you know, we would sell right down to the very last unit. And if that unit was dirty uh, or miscounted, so we didn't, we counted a hundred units and we sold, or say we counted a hundred, but there's really 95, you know, we could oversell those and that, that creates a huge issue uh, with your customer and, and just in internal accounting and, and inventory control. So that was our huge learning there. And that's how we, we got so good at it at Thuggies, and that's how we've managed to handle the inventory control at Bedface. That's not to say there isn't a mistake once in a while, but it, it definitely uh, helps us be very efficient at getting our products out and reordering our products and having them ship out on time in the right size and the right color. Um, that was our first learning that we brought. I think other ones were to have a good team and good partners. And just like we talked about earlier, um, having the right partners around or the right people working for you is obviously key. And that's what everyone will tell you. Um, I think those are probably the two biggest inventory control and, and the, uh, teamwork and teammates. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So I think uh, we all have heard about the entrepreneurs and the most common, uh, I guess, ailment of a quote unquote entrepreneur is that they'll start working on something and then they encounter an issue, a roadblock, or maybe just become less interested in it and then hop on to a next project. I don't think this is the case with you guys, but I think it's still a worthwhile question to ask, you know, why not just double down on, on just uh, thuggies rather than focus on starting another business? <laughs> this is a really good question. <laughs> um, I think there's a couple internal reasons uh, that we, we wanted to do, we wanted to do something different. Um, our partners are becoming, uh, you know, busier and busier uh, and wanted to do less kind of sweat equity work for the companies. 
so we said, okay, like the people that have time, we should start working on Bedface and let's use Bedface's success to help bring up, uh, you know, talent in, within our group to grow thuggies to the next level as well. So uh, generally I would tell people not to do this and not to kind of split your, split your work on something that you've proven to be good. But the way we sat down and, and really planned out how, uh, how both companies can grow at the same time and how we can help each other and, and we can grow, um, you know, our team into being this, this flexible kind of group, uh, was kind of the way it worked and the way we saw success in both companies. And, and we share everything like our chats are on the same window and there'll be two people, you know, talking to different customers at the same time. And, um, we'll be testing ads on thuggies that we then try on bed faces, uh, customers, and then we'll switch it around or we'll try a new app in one company while the other one's testing another one. And then they both kind of grow when we find these successes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, the experience uh, of starting Thuggies, obviously helping you with bed phase, and of course the shared resources makes it a lot easier to get started uh, with a new company as well. But have there been any other benefits that have come because of having two companies? Not just, not just, not so much. Uh, I guess a benefit that you're able to reap from uh, the success mm-hmm. of Thuggies, but just because you know one plus one equals three by having two businesses. Have you have you encountered any of those kind of benefits yeah for sure uh we pop into those almost every day here um we find our our team learns a lot faster uh they're able to when they're not working you know if they say they're working on a spreadsheet for bed face and it's just driving them nuts instead of them working slower on it or you know taking a two-hour break and going for a walk or going home early they just switch their minds completely. They'll go for a walk for five minutes or go grab a coffee and they'll come back and say, okay, I'm going to work on this part of thuggies to kind of rejog my mind. And, um, I see that almost every day with our team and always really impressed with, with that. And, um, we actually end up finding that with some of the apps we use too, where both companies are so different and so similar at the same time that we find these, these glitches in apps that we're telling our, our service providers like, Hey, I think you need to fix this. And this is why we need to fix this. And, um, you see a lot of, I guess the two or the one plus one equals three in this business. And as long as it's well managed, uh, it works out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Makes makes sense. Uh, so now that you have uh, both of these companies, uh, pretty much, I guess, humming along. Like, how do you decide? How do you split your your day? Like, how do you decide to, or how do you, I guess, manage your time between the two different businesses? Yeah, I probably have the hardest uh, time management between the two than anybody else in the company, just because I'm at the top of both of them. The nice thing with Thuggies is that it's super seasonal. Uh, we're trying to gain more sales and gain more, uh, you know, push through the kind of outside of Christmas sales, but really Thuggies, um, is insane at Christmas. It's between November and December, November and February kind of timing is probably 85% of our market. So outside of that, we're prepping for that, that push, but 
while we're doing that, we can sell bed sheets through the entire year. And mm. we know with thuggies, like where if we sell X amount of thuggies today in November, it's usually, you know, 10 or 15 times more. So we can make estimates for bed face and say, okay, we need to set this much time aside to set that company up for the same success. So with me, I try to write lists and I use glip.com and write myself tasks and set strict deadlines on when I need to get them done. And I also tell everybody that works here to yell at me if I'm behind. <laughs> so <laughs> it's nice to have that uh, time split and, um, but it definitely creates challenges and um, it can lead to, you know, over-focus on one and then the other one can come down and that's where I rely on, on our team to, to say, hey, Brad, like, you need to focus more on this right now and this is more important. And it's not towards, it's not to hurt the other business, but it's, it's a goal that we set and we need to go to that and that's how it's been working so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of listeners do have businesses that obviously will have an uptick in the holidays as well, just because of nature of retail in general. Uh, but for any business out there that has a highly seasonal business where all the sales are, um, uh, you know, over 50% of sales are concentrated within just one quarter, how do you spend your time the rest of the year? Like, how do you prepare for to make sure that that quarter is as successful as possible? Uh, we test ads that we saw working through, uh, the winter or through Christmas and try to do variations of that. Um, we still haven't found huge success in thuggies and in that kind of realm, but we try to build, you know, our micro, our micro influences bigger. We try to get, um, you know, try to have a gift guide plan and how we're going to get to these people. And we really start focusing more on, on getting these, lifestyle shots and kind of regrouping from from the holidays usually takes a solid two months to get everything back in order and clean up the warehouse and um the tornado came through. kind of get everybody to yeah we usually take a solid week and a half to just relax and work kind of half days and say okay we're through it and let's regroup and and get back on it and, and plan so i'd say uh through the downtime, you can still make money and that's where to find, you know, your next season instead of waiting. And if you are finding that you're waiting, then at least really prep for your waiting, like really prep for that high season. Mm, makes sense. Uh, so one thing you mentioned, uh, I guess in the pre-interview was about how you have, have I guess, uh, created the skill of building market share prediction models in Excel. Can you tell us a little more about this? Like what are market share prediction models? Yeah. Um, I used to be a, a city planner and we would, uh, you know, help people or I helped the city, um, rezone and, and develop new properties. And after that, I worked for a private company that did the same thing and we were all in retail and, uh, I was helping build malls in the Middle East and in Canada and the U.S. And we built these models to say, like, if a market a market share is a percentage of what everybody is spending in whatever market you're in, how much you think you can capture. So it's a fairly basic explanation. And in an Excel sheet, you can do it really easy. You can say, you know, if you want to make a, a chair and sell it, you can probably Google how many chairs are sold or what the furniture market is in the U S then you can estimate 
how much, like what percentage you are going to capture of that. So that would be, you know, say, say I'm a startup, I might get 0.025 of that million dollars. That's a really basic um, explanation. You can build them insanely, insanely crazy over pages and pages of Excel. But that's basically how it works. It's a, a what percentage of a consumer spend can you get? Um, and that could be as much as, um, you know, at a ski festival, you can say, well, there's 100,000 people going. They're probably spending $100 a day, and there's probably half of that spent on food, and then the half of it spent on ski gear, and then what does that leave? So there's maybe $7 to $10 that each person there can spend. And then you can say, well, if there's 100,000 people, that's you know $700,000 worth of spending. And then what are they going to spend that on? And, and work down again and say, what percentage can I get of that? And that's really how we've used, uh, how we've worked both our companies is we've tried to figure out what people are spending. Uh, with Thuggies, it was novelty goods. And bedsheets, we had a lot more idea of what people are spending in the U.S. and Canada. And then we really just estimated how much we could get. And then how would we get that is the next step. So if you think you're going to get $100 million of the market, you better have a really good idea of the next step and the marketing. That, that's where like the marketing and the, the business plan comes in. So this is kind of like the pre-business plan. And that was just something I learned at work and took it, from, took it out of real estate and put it into, into any other product, really. Yeah, I think this is particularly useful for anyone that's just looking for their first product or first store to start is to do this kind of market research, do this kind of analysis to find out is it even worth it, worth your time to to invest in in starting this business. But I think what you were saying at the end too was that if you got if you're thinking about releasing a new product line for an existing business is also just as useful because you can again determine if it's a worthwhile investment in this new product line or not. So um, yeah, yeah, thanks so much for your time, Brad. So thuggies.com was the uh, was this, the original store in bedface.com b e d f a c e.com is the second store anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out they want to follow along with what you guys are up to yeah it'd be great just follow us on uh, instagram and pinterest and facebook uh, we're at the thuggy for thuggies and we're bedface sheets for everything else on bedface and um yeah get comfy this year get bed sheets and extra long sweatshirts we're uh the best things on the market and you don't even have to wear pants. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll link all those uh, places up on, in the show notes. Again, thanks so much for your time, Brad. Great. Thanks, Felix. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.